Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I discovered there's a fine line between rescuing a bee with some sugar water and waterboarding a bee. I saw your pictures and they made me feel itchy. I had a massive bumbler right on my hand. He was amazing. Or she did not lift its skirts. No bees did die in the making of this anecdote. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I wear glasses now. Fucking hell, you've actually put them on. I know. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't there oh, a moment ago. They, they look really nice. Yeah, welcome. $2 in Costco in Ottawa. Thanks, Costco. Fun fact. And I'm Jen Offord and I am part woman, part football. What's the ratio? Uh, it's a solid 60-40. Which way? It's probably 40 football. Despite this information, I won't be kicking Jen against a wall later. Please don't. <laughs> seems, seems wrong. What I am doing later is chatting with the boss, that's right, our very own Sarah Milliken, about her new Radio 4 panel show, Elephant in the Room, which is coming to your ears on Thursday the 27th of June. Ooh. We talked to author Dina Nieri about her book, The Ungrateful Refugee, and about why we could all do with a little bit more compassion. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I catch up with Olympic legend Catherine Granger and give you the lowdown on what's been going on in the Women's World Cup. And in Dunleavy Does Dystopia, we watch 1984, a film that starts with people just full-on screaming at the news. Case closed, I'd say. <laughs> I don't understand. Why is that relevant? But first, London houses, Bradford Streets, and almost too much shit fuckery to bear. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we'd rather meet the Prince of Wales than Prince Charles. Yes, that joke works out loud. <laughs> Splashing into the sea of bullshit surrounding domestic violence with seemingly nary a care for... Well, anything, Nottinghamshire Police announced it's piloting a scheme where victims of domestic violence will have their kitchen knives replaced with blunt-tipped utensils to help stop partners attacking them in their own home. Around 100 no-point knives will be given to victims who have either been threatened or attacked with a knife. Let's just allow that to settle and for the sky screaming to subside... And, you know, after that, I think we can all agree it's a great initiative because it means that women who fear they might be stabbed to death by their partner need fear no more because there are literally no other ways to die at the hands of a violent man. What the shitting fuck? And even if there wasn't any other way to die, these no-point knives still have a blade. It's not like they're replacing knives with strawberry laces or feather dusters. They're still knives, for fuck's sake. It's just a trial, the Nottinghamshire police have said, seemingly on repeat since they announced the world's stupidest idea, and were quickly told it's not just the knives that are fucking pointless. In fairness to Nottinghamshire police, this trial is part of a larger strategy. But the blunt tip knives are more dangerous than just being a silly idea. It shows a complete lack of understanding around domestic violence. I refer you to the, as ever, excellent Dr Jessica Eaton, who put it succinctly. The problem is not the sharpness of the knife. The problem is male violence. I mean, it's almost as if you couldn't go out and get another knife. I mean, the thought that you could say, hang on, not that one. Could you please do it with this rubber-tipped Not knife. your fist, not your no. foot, nothing, yeah. Also, the homeowner has to consent to having the replacement knives in the home. I imagine that conversation is going to go well. It's almost like saying that if someone is suicidal, you should take all the sharp objects out of their house. It's that kind of logic. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, if somebody is genuinely, genuinely in a mind to do damage to themselves, they'll find a way. Absolutely. And if they're in a mind to do damage to somebody else, they'll find a way. <sighs> anyway, 
Scotland Yard has said it will not press incitement to violence charges after comedian and person who is paid to say funny and possibly controversial things, Joe Brand, said something funny and controversial on a BBC radio show. That's right, here's where we are, people. Nigel Farage can say things about grabbing a rifle and say it was a joke, but Joe Brand can't make a joke about violence without the police getting involved. Remind me who the snowflakes are again. Mm. Brand was on Heresy, a panel show devised by David Baddiel, in which people are encouraged to say unsayable (laughs) things. When she joked that she didn't know why people were throwing milkshakes at politicians when they could be throwing battery acid. Now, you might think my view is being tainted by the fact that I think Joe Brand is an asset to women, to the arts and to the country in general. Whereas I think Farage is a bilious wazzock, a bigoted cock, a devious twat, a frog-faced fuck, an arse, a cock, a very good foot and a total and unmitigated cunt. And maybe there is something (laughs) in that, I don't know. But the truth is, until this joke, which Brand has apologised for, her most famous quip was this one. They say the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Personally, I think it's a bread knife. Has it led to a parade of women stabbing their partners and blaming Joe Brand? Not according to Google, it hasn't. Comedians making jokes, even unpleasant ones, is not the problem we have in this country at the moment. And if you're wasting your time fretting about what they are saying and not the torrent of lies exuding from men like Farage, you're being had. Yep. Hey guys, ever heard of the no recourse to public funds policy? No. No, me either. Do you want to know why? I don't know, it sounds tedious. <laughs> well, it's because it's fucking horrible, that's why. The uh, NRPF is a condition that might be imposed on someone due to their immigration status, brought in back in 1999. But widened by, guess who? Our old mate Teabag, back when she was doing a hostile environment ting at the Home Office in 2012. The policy is exactly what it says on the tin, and it means that those who face it have no access to public funds. With new research published by charity The Unity Project, finding that it leads to malnourishment, sickness and a range of mental health problems. The report examined the cases of 276 families and found that many British children were impacted by the policy, which in some cases was applied to even those who had permission to live and work in the UK. Perhaps unsurprisingly, 95% of those cases were from ethnic minority, mostly black families. And 85% of those seeking to overturn their NRPF status were single mothers, because of course they were. Brace yourself for more stats. 6% had experienced living on the streets with their children, and 74% had not been able to provide their kids with a hot, nutritious meal on at least one day. And I could go on... A Home Office spokesperson said that the welfare of children is one of our top priorities and that the immigration system will always protect families with children from becoming destitute. They added, support will never be withheld if the welfare of a child is at risk due to a family's financial circumstances. And yet, Mm -hmm. hmm, you'll no doubt have heard Boris Johnson defending his horrendous comments about Muslim women looking like post boxes, etc. earlier this week, saying, as if he were a Daily Mail soundbite, comments such as these are the antidote to bureaucracy. And it was greeted with rapturous applause. It is shit like this, as you'll hear from our interview with Dean and Nieri in a bit, that allows policies like this to go unnoticed. On the subject of refugees, Captain Pia Klemp, skipper of the search and rescue ship Juventa, has saved 6,000 migrants and refugees from drowning in the Mediterranean. 
And you might be wondering why the good news story is so high up in this week's Bush Telegraph. Well, that is because Clemp, alongside nine of her shipmates, is facing up to 20 years in prison for saving those lives. Because Helena Hancock is too good for us. The Juventa 10 stand accused of aiding and abetting illegal migration in seeking to rescue people in danger after fleeing the Libyan coast for Europe. What's the illegal deal? Well, after the Italian government railed against the large numbers of people being rescued and returned to their ports and the lack of support from the EU's other 27 member states, of which were still technically one, a deal was agreed with the Libyan Coast Guard, basically a group of militia, in which the EU would fund their operations to find and return those in the Mediterranean to Libya. And so, in August 2017, the Juventa was seized at the port of Lampedusa. Excuse my Italian pronunciation there. And last year, Matteo Salvini, Italy's far-right interior minister, called for Klemp to be arrested for her role in saving migrants and refugees by bypassing the Italian government's closure of ports. Klemp, who has accused the EU of letting people die and the Italian authorities of, quote, criminalising solidarity, said... There is no way I am going to prison for saving people in distress. It is the most ridiculous thing on so many different levels and I will never accept anything else but acquittal. I enjoy her... um, Positivity? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm not going to jail. No, I'm I'm not going to jail. (laughs) Does that work? Yeah. I hope it works. Is there anyone out there actually listening? I ask just because a recent report by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism based on a YouGov survey, found that a third of Brits actively avoid the news, up 11% to 35% in the last year. The cause? You've guessed it, Brexit. And yes, there is a divide in the way Remainers and Leavers see it. Who'd have thought it, eh? No. What? They usually agree on everything. 65% of Remain voters found the news made them feel worse about the world. (laughs) I concur. While 41% of Leave voters avoid Brexit reports because they don't trust them. (laughs) And yet they trust Boris Johnson. Funny old world, eh? 70% of Brits also expressed concern about fake news, up 12% on last year. All of which means the country seems to be roughly divided into five key groups. People who believe the news because it's what they want to hear. People who don't believe the news because it's not what they want to hear. People who believe the news even though they don't want to hear it. People who believe the news because it's not what I want to hear. (laughs) And people screaming into pillows. It's fair to say plenty of people haven't been getting any help from the government, but guess who has? That's right, guys. People who didn't need it. And by people, I mean more than half of those using the government's help to buy loan scheme, according to a recent report published by the National Audit Office. And presumably, all of those construction companies former Chancellor George Man of the People Osborne was trying to fluff up back in 2014. Yeah, as well as upping the national housing stock and helping first-time buyers get on the property ladder, 37% of whom actually needed help, according to the report, it's also led to a dramatic increase in the profits of the country's largest house builders. Meanwhile, the NAO found that the loans worth up to 20% of the market value of an eligible property, rising to 40% in London at zero interest for five years, are not means-tested and about a fifth of those benefiting from the scheme actually already owned a property. Hmm. Hmm. Housing Minister Kit Malthouse defended what he called a genuinely life-changing scheme And, like, to be fair, for the people that need it, it is. Mm -hmm. And he said it would be extended to make it exclusively available for first-time buyers 
in 2021. So get in there quick, guys. I mean, I'd imagine it's genuinely life-changing for the people that don't need it as well, because they own two houses. Yeah, those rents are yeah. know, pretty good in London, especially. Everybody watched last night's debate. And to be clear, I mean Sunday night's Tory leadership debate on Channel 4 as opposed to Tuesday night's BBC One debate, which will be last night for anyone listening, but it's still in the future for me. Everybody clear? Yep. Right. Anyway, I was stuck in a traffic jam on Sunday and missed it. Fingers crossed the same thing happens on Tuesday. (laughs) Maybe I'll just drive around looking for what roads to shut and join a long queue. The headline story from Sunday was that front runner and sentient yeast infection oh. Boris Johnson didn't show up because he finds that kind of thing, and I quote, cacophonous. Remind me who the snowflakes are again. Oh, More news on the Tory leadership battle if and when it ever lines up with our recording schedule. But if you just imagine us banging our heads against a wall, you're about up to date on our opinion in the meanwhile. Anybody want some good news? Uh, I, I'm not even sure I believe you that there is. You're wrong. I have got bona fide, not even slightly smeared in shit, good news for you. And it's about women. Bingo bongo. Come back up north with me to Bradford. (laughs) To Bradford. (laughs) (laughs) Where more streets and public spaces are to be named after women. Yes. The delightfully named Pioneering Bradford Losses, a council-led campaign, aims to acknowledge and promote the important role of women in the city's history and, quote, further improve the gender balance around the Bradford district when it comes to publicly honouring historical figures. First up on Bradford's new map is suffragette Lillian Armitage, born in 1885. She campaigned for women's right to vote, was briefly imprisoned and is now going to be honoured with Lillian Armitage Close. Councillor Sarah Ferriby said... I work in City Hall most days and while there are rightly many pictures of the old industrialists and aldermen who helped shape our district, these are, by and large, male figures. We hope to inspire young women across the district to go on and make their own history. Man, I love the North. Yay. Elsewhere, there was good news for the so-called NPR raccoon. (laughs) And indeed the world, as the little critter reached his 20-storey high destination last week. The raccoon, who has been climbing the side of a skyscraper in St Paul, Minnesota, has been fascinating the listeners of Minnesota Public Radio thanks to his high-altitude adventures. On a Twitter account set up in the NPR raccoon's name, thanks God, the people of Minnesota and the Wu-Tang Clan. (laughs) I don't know why. As he finally reached the summit. I thank the Wu-Tang Clan after every 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 good thing that's happened to me. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we head to the barrel of fish we keep in the standard issue house. Women, fetch me my rifle. It's time. Proving itself as sexist as it is racist, to absolutely no one's surprise, French satirical weekly magazine Charlie Hebdo ran a cover about the FIFA Women's World Cup, currently being held in that there France. Mm. It would have been nice to say it ran a cover celebrating the Women's World Cup, but we live in a world where we can't have nice things. And instead, it was a cartoon of a woman's vulva with a football shooting out of her vagina. Is it a thoughtful piece marking the birth of women's football? Or is it a crude slap in the face for women's sport from a cupboard of jizz flannels? You decide. I know I have. Hello, Hannah here. If you'll just permit me this small interruption, I wanted to let you know that on Friday we will be releasing the before-promised second edition of Outside the Box this month. 
because there's so much great telly, we couldn't even fit it into one. So coming up on Friday, we will be talking about Black Mirror, The Handmaid's Tale, Years and Years, Ghosts, Jessica Jones, and some other stuff besides. Plus, if you're waiting for a specific Netflix program to arrive back on your screens, the good news is you might well learn the date of that. Keep your eye out for that on Friday. Or if you don't want to keep your eye out, because that is an aggravation. I mean, we're already having to keep our eye on way too much stuff at the moment. You can just press subscribe on iTunes, on Acast, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And it will be waiting for you, along with the many other brilliant things that we have planned in the next few months. I thank you. We're joined, and by we, I mean me and the Nuna Meister. Sorry, Mickey, it's Mickey. <laughs> and Dina Neri, author of the new book, The Ungrateful Refugee. Hi, Dina. Thanks Hi. for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Your new book is about your experience of being a refugee, first of all, in Italy, where you came to from Iran. Well, yes, a part of the book is memoir. It's not all of it, but it's kind of a little bit about how, you know, I lived in Iran with my family in Isfahan um, up until about 1988. And then we moved to Dubai and then to Italy. So we escaped from Iran because my mother's life was in danger. She had converted from Islam to Christianity. And that is, you know, know, very illegal there. Mm-hmm. And she was also proselytizing. And she started to get arrested and jailed. And, and after a while, it became quite dire. They were, became very serious. And so we escaped the country. So we, at first, you know, just kind of got on the back of a cargo plane and, and flew to Tehran. And then after that, my father helped smuggle us out. Um, we were illegal or undocumented um, immigrants in Dubai um, for about 10 months. And then UNHCR had us placed in a refugee camp outside of Rome in Mentana, Italy. And it was this old converted hotel. It has like ramshackle, like bones of a hotel they were using to house refugees. What were the living conditions like? Well, actually, they were very, very basic, you know, prison sheets and, and, and that sort of thing, but they weren't terrible. It was a time when refugees were treated with a lot more respect, I think, and that particular uh, place was uh, considered a low-hardship camp, which meant that, you know, they put a lot of people who are political asylum seekers and, and scholars and doctors and that sort of, from a lot of different countries, and they gave us each our own room, and that was really very important. We each had our own bathrooms and our own room. My brother, mother, and I shared a bed but it was still like a door that we could close. And because it had been a hotel at some point, it had, you know, kind of a big open space where we all ate together. And that was also important. They gave us three meals a day, which actually later proved to be kind of an obstacle because that was the only place we could get food, but we had to go to school. But it was better than when we were undocumented immigrants in Dubai. There we lived like in a roach motel that we actually even had to pay for ourselves. And again, same bed, you know, much, much worse conditions. So you were in Italy for a while, but then you went to the U.S. So after we were put in the refugee hostel and outside of Rome, um, we started to apply to various embassies, mostly English-speaking countries, so the U.K., the U.S., Australia, and so on. And we were accepted by the U.S., Oklahoma, where our sponsors lived. That's where we lived until I went off to college. Oklahoma must have been... A shock. (laughs) Yeah. 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 What kind of reception did you get then? It was brutal. I mean, it was late 
80s, early 90s, people were not, you know, it's not like they had the internet. They didn't have that much access to other kinds of people. Their world was very small. I think probably living in middle America now is a very, very different experience if you, you know, have enough money to have a computer. Of course it is. You know, then it was absurd. I mean, they had never seen someone from the Middle East before. It was the beginning of the, you know, first Iraq war. Mm. All they saw was just brutal things in the in the news. Um, all of their fears came from my part of the world. And here I was and my mom and, and, and my brother, you know, not only very clearly Middle Eastern with accents, but we also had lost all our money. So we were just dirt poor. There was a lot of angles from which for hate and abuse to come in. And yeah, it took a good year and a half or so for my accent and uh, my vocabulary to catch up even remotely. And considering that we came from a family of, you know, doctors and scholars and all that, mm. a very prideful country too. Oh my gosh, Iranians have so much pride. <laughs> yeah, I think all of the psychological things there were much, much harder than the physical burdens of trying to start over. You said oh, you came from a family of doctors, but yeah. I think people just forget that there's been a life before for refugees. Oh, yeah. And it could have been way better than what they're living now. Yes. Yes. Oh, exactly. I mean, they don't think of it. And they especially didn't then. I mean, you were you were a category at the same as and it didn't really matter where you came from. Once you entered the country, you were just from the great unknown. You know, there wasn't even a moment of thinking that there were educated classes and people with, um, you know, actually really beautiful lives, even in countries with problematic governments. You know, we came from a country whose government we just greatly disagreed with and made our lives miserable. Mm -hmm. But still, like there was my parents with their medical practices. There was a, a little village where my father grew up where you just felt like you were transported back 200 years, you know, like just food and villagers and like children playing and orchards to run around in. And that stuff was really phenomenal. You know, the, the thing I always remembered um, was that in our house in Isfahan, there was this kind of in the middle of the living room, there was this big glass tunnel that came from the ground and there was a tree growing through it. That sounds know? well cool. Yeah, yeah it, People just kind of imagined you know, oh you were, no matter how badly you live in Oklahoma, it is better than what you left behind and that's not true. Well yeah, I mean I've seen quite a lot of like rural parts of the southern yeah. states of the US and, <laughs> and it's not true. Not so awesome, <laughs> it's is not it? true. No. no glass tunnels with trees in no. them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean for many people, it just, there's just such a variety, you know, for some people you know, yes, anything is better, they come from truly war-torn regions. Like, I imagine if you're coming from, you know, rural Syria, you know, things are better no matter, you know, where you end up. But the thing is that I think people just took so much for granted without asking, like, what was your life like? Who were you? What do you want? There's the, the massive disconnect between what happened before someone had to leave a country. Yeah. Yes. And so also that not just like, well, you're now here and you have to fit in and we're going to not make you feel very welcome, mm -hmm. but also you having to deal with the fact that your entire life has changed. You've had to leave your dad and yeah. all this stuff. And the title of your book is The Ungrateful Refugee. Mm. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek, yes. Well, no, totally. Well, but yeah. I think it's people expect you to be grateful. And mm -hmm. excuse my language, but why the fuck should they? Well, but I think that um, they do. And we all did. But it's such a private feeling. It's like love. You can't force it, right? I mean, you can ask someone, you know, love me, show me kindness, you know, or show me gratitude. These are personal things that people hold in their heart. And I think the second you tell them to feel that, they stop feeling that. Mm -hmm. So I guess the point with that I was trying to make is just let people have their private experience of of change, of leaving behind their lives and all of that stuff. And and come at it from a, with a different attitude and just show curiosity. Just step up and be like, you know what? I just 
I don't know any of it. Just tell me all of it mm-hmm. rather than try to be like, okay, here's what you should do. Just ask so, the questions. Yeah, even well-meaning pe- people who are just wanting to show love. There's such a huge community of refugee support people here in London and in England, and they want so much to help. They have such big hearts, and they think that um, it's all just material and they need to go out and raise money and all that. And they, yes, that helps very much. Um, but yeah, but it's also just the biggest loss uh, among these groups of migrants is their dignity and so anything you can do to give that back it's it's all free you can just sit and listen i think that's quite interesting that yeah. you just said migrants because this is like a thing that i have quite a lot when i watch the news when mm-hmm. they refer to people coming from syria and places like that as migrants or they're immigrants or whatever mm-hmm. is that they're fucking refugees yeah. like they, they literally need to be somewhere else like mm-hmm. this is a different thing and you treat it in such a way that I think discourages the compassion that you would maybe show yes. to someone. Obviously, you've lived in the States and now you're in the UK. <laughs> These are both places that are currently not really known for <laughs> their hospitality towards refugees yeah. or mm-hmm. migrants. I'd just like to know a bit about how you sort of perceive the current situation. To be honest, I see it as just a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of terrible messages, you know, wrong messages, a lot of fear for one's own entitlements and all of that. And and I think that what I want to do is just help set a a few things straight. One thing I I mentioned in the book is I was driving through the Cotswolds a couple of years ago and I saw this big UKIP sign that said Mm. um, integration, not multiculturalism. (sighs) And I remember thinking, wow, that's such a misuse of both those words. You know, like, the two aren't kind of set against each other at all, not at all. And in it's fact, it's like they don't care about the truth, do they? <laughs> yeah, yes. No, don't be <laughs> but silly. It was, but it's not not even caring about the truth. It was just basic lack of like understanding of what these things are. You know, like of course people are going to assimilate with time. It's like saying, you know, don't stop time. Okay, we won't. You know, yeah. like they're going to <laughs> they're going to assimilate. Now the question is, are, I mean, when you say the not multiculturalism, I mean you're blatantly saying no welcome. You know, become me or that's it. Or you know, like sever all ties with your past. I mean, that's not something that you could be asked to do. So why would you ask it of someone else? In the book, why now? And what kind of other stories are you telling in the book? Well, the now is there's just so many things that just suddenly happen to make me, I guess, want to make a little bit of a shift in the kind of work that I do because I, I'm a fiction writer. and I've written two novels mm. and short stories and I was kind of very happily doing kind of the subtle work of showing individual humans through fiction. And suddenly the Brexit vote happened Trump was elected and I had a baby girl. You know, my, I became a mother for the first time. And all three of those things just made me very, very scared. You know, yeah. I had become very slowly American over the decades and I felt very secure in my, you know, American passport. And, and I also have a French passport. And so I thought, you know, I'm good, you know. And then mm-hmm. suddenly my daughter came along and I thought, oh, my gosh, is she going to be good? Like, she has such an Iranian face, you know. She has just her background is so, so varied. And, you know, memories started to rush back about those early days, what happened to me and and what kind of a world will she live in so that's when I wrote that essay the ungrateful refugee you know and I I just wanted to say something a lot more directly than you can with fiction and then I wrote this book because after I wrote that essay I decided I'm going to go in search of some other stories I want to see what's happening now how is it different from what was in the late 80s when I arrived and and so I started going to a couple of refugee camps in Greece and then I um, I also went and visited migrant communities of undocumented and also rejected immigrants immigrants who are just never 
were going to get accepted in Holland and Germany and here. And I wrote some of the stories that were most moving to me. I tried to stay away a little bit from the most obviously dramatic, insane stories because the people who would be accepted anyway, even, you know, in Trump's America and even in, in post, you know, mm. Brexit England, there was a guy who, for example, found himself like on a being forced to clean a slave ship for months and months. And then he ended up somehow in the water with a little girl and he treaded water for hours and hours. That guy is going to be accepted into a European country. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm concerned with is stories of the many migrants who have the same story again and again and again. And especially some of the places where it doesn't matter what your story is, you're not going to get in because they don't think that's good enough. And that's the case, for example, of economic migrants. And I'm using air quotes because I hate that phrase so much. Mm. It's like, what is enough hardship for you to decide that that person is owed the same or or do the same kind of opportunities as you? You know, why is it okay to escape from war, which it is, of course, okay, but not okay to escape from absolute economic oppression and an environment in which you can't possibly thrive, use your talents or allow your children to do anything, hope for anything? To me, that's a good enough reason. You said that you went round to find out stories to see how it was different to when Mm -hmm. you moved. Yeah. How is it different? Well, there's so much more hostility, you know, and there, and there's so much more distrust. And I have a whole chapter in there about how, like, what exactly is truth and who decides? If you read some of the stories about how a typical asylum officer decides who is not telling the truth, I mean, you'd be absolutely shocked. They don't take into account any cultural differences in storytelling, trauma, shame, you know, LGBTQ refugees who have so much shame from things that have happened to them yeah. and also are afraid to say, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian, or, you know, don't say it the minute they come in, they make up something else because they're so afraid. Well, they're not believed because they can't sell that story. And then mm. later when they're helped by refugee support networks who bring in psychologists, et cetera, and say, you can, you can feel safe here, tell your story, then they do. The home offices don't believe them because they say you changed your story. Also, just the language. Um, they, they call refugees swarms or flood mm. or, you know, these things that are meant to invoke these images. Dehumanization. Because I think even for the best intention people it's it's easy to lose sight of all of these people being individuals exactly exactly i think the individual stories matter so much i think the sad part of it is the people who will get to hear the individual stories are the ones who are already allies because they go there and they knock on the doors and they're the good neighbors and those who are the most hostile who most need like a a refugee in their lives (laughs) are the ones who will stay away and it's sad I I just I wish that I can reach the people who are hostile how can we make that faster how can we help well, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't know because I've grappled with this question for for so long. I think one thing that's not being talked about and one way I'd love the conversation to change is have you heard, you know, so many people talk about how much good migrants do for the native born. Like, yes. So they talk about how, you know, and this is something. The NHS. You know, yeah. Taxes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And those things are all true. Mm. But they're not the only thing that should be talked about. The key thing to ask ourselves is, I think some people think of this as naive, but I think it's really, really important to ask ourselves, why are we entitled to so much? Let's talk about the accident of birth, right? Mm, Let's talk about the fact that, you know, none of us did anything to deserve so much luck, Mm. uh, you know, in being born in the places that we... Well, I think that pride can come with, you know, a certain amount of humility, but also feeling of responsibility, then it can be yeah. productive. You'd be like, okay, you know, my ancestors, they somehow, you know, made something of a big chunk of the world's resources. So, okay, good. Now I owe something to the rest of the world. And I think the m- most fruitful way to end all of these conversations is always like to say, not much is being asked of you. 
is just to, to love and to listen to one or two people and then let the rest of it do its own work, I suppose. Dana, your book was published on the 30th of May. Yes. I assume it's available in all good bookstores and indeed online. Yes, it is. And where can we find out more information? I'm on Twitter, Dina Nayeri, and also I have a website. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, hey there, people of Canterbury, people near Canterbury, and people with weekend access to Canterbury. We're bloody coming for you, in the nicest possible way, of course. That's right, our next live event is at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury on Sunday the 21st of July, when we're joined by the always excellent Scummy Mummies, Helen Thorne and Ellie Gibson, and socio-political powerhouse Kimar Bob for an hour of fierceness and funnies as part of the Marlowe Comedy Festival. It's going to be mint, and you can get tickets via our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com or by going to the What's On section of marlowtheatre.com Come, see us, let us see you. Yes. Alright, you may have heard my dulcet tones advertising an audible book called Period Power. It might even be on this episode. We never know. Anyway, It is an incredible book about women's bodies and the cycle and its associated hormones that dictate, well, pretty much everything. I am, of course, talking about our menstrual cycle. It's genuinely excited and inspired me. So I was well chuffed when its author, Maisie Hill, said she was up for chatting to us. Sweet Fancy Moses. It was a fascinating natter. And it is this Sunday's chops, so please do give it a listen, as I am confident it will excite and inspire you too and make you ever so curious about these incredible bodies we inhabit, but have had so little research attention. Because patriarchy. In the meantime, have a nose at Maisie's website, www.maisiehill.com. Hello, Mickey here. And to my right, incredibly, somebody the fucking boss. All right, Sarah Milliken. Hello. Thanks for coming on. The fucking boss. Yeah. I think that should be, I should have a name badge with that on now. The fucking what, boss. What, to go with the t-shirt you're already wearing? <laughs> yeah. And the trousers. <laughs> you were just reading my t-shirt when you did the introduction. <laughs> and the Bealy Boppers. <laughs> oh, I miss Dealey Boppers. Oh, I think did you say Bealy Boppers? Bop- Is that no, wrong? it's wrong. It's Dealey Boppers. Oh, we had really cheap ones. Maybe that's why they couldn't oh, afford a D. <laughs> you have come on the pod scene to chat about your new radio show. I have. Tell us about it. So it's going to be on Radio 4, because like, that's the only radio really that you can get comedy on, I think, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, radio 4, and it's panel show. Ooh. That is And exciting. it's called Elephant in the Room. I am the host... And there are four guests. And what we've done, we surveyed my mailing list and we thought we'd get like 100 people to respond. And within like two days, there was 3,000 people had responded. Amazing. What questions like, are you asking? They like to keep me happy because <laughs> uh, they're smashers. And it was all questions to find out what the national average is of many silly questions. Like what's your, what's your favourite cheese or how old were you when you learned to ride a bike or what is your death row meal or what do you look for in a friend and we gave them multiple answers to choose from and then they could also write an extra answer in if they wanted from that we get the average so what we do then is we ask the panel 
which is three women and one man. Or as I keep calling them, some women and a man. <laughs> some women, the show where some women and a man. <laughs> and we talk about what their sort of stories are of when they learn to ride a bike, etc. And then we work out which of the panellists is closest to the average and which is furthest away. And they both get a point. because it's oh. So you get a point. if You win if you're average, but you also win if you're the most different. The, the, we, we call them bloody mavericks. The bloody maverick. <laughs> so that's the gist. opportunities. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But also it's just celebrating the norm and the different, I guess. Amazing. Yeah. So where did the idea come from? Well, I sort of wanted to do radio because I love radio because you don't really have to brush your hair for radio, which is... That is true. Um, I Loving love radio. Well, I love, exactly. I love radio because I love that you are only ever judged on what you say. That's all they have to go on. All anybody has to go on. And I love that. I love that you don't. Because when you do telly, to, and telly can be fun. It can also be quite hard, but it's mostly fun. But you've got to have two, two and a half hours in hair and makeup, and you've got to work out what top will make your tits look less lopsided. Et and you don't want to strobe. Is that a thing? Yeah, that is a thing. It's really hard for strobe, and you've got to. Like it's always got to be block colours, and I like a pattern because a busy pattern can hide a multitude of sins, sweat patches, dinner dribbles, all sorts of things. That is my pattern. Um, so for the radio, you can just wear what you like, and we all just we we've recorded one so far, and we all just sat around, and we had desks very important so that you can even just you could have your pajamas on underneath because even the audience in the studio wouldn't have known. Did you have your pajamas? No, on? No, but we think we might for the last one. Yes. Like, all come out in our pajamas, so we'll see. So we did a pilot a year and a half ago, and that went really well. And yeah, and it's so much fun. And the audiences are great because they all come in from the mailing list, and they're just lovely bonnie smashers. They're great. And do you get to answer the questions as well? So I'm the host, but I'm also interjecting. So if anybody, when somebody says something, if I've got a funny thing, I'm chucking it in as well. Because, you know, when you're the host, you can sort of do what you like. (laughs) And are all the panellists comedians? Not always. I think on the one that we've recorded, they were, we had Aisha Hazarika, who is technically, she is a comic, but she's also, she's a multi-hyphenate, as they call it these days. Um, And we had Jenny Clay, Alan Cochran and Hayley Ellis. So sometimes we have people who are funny, but don't happen to be a comedian, like in the pilot we had Emma Kennedy which uh, one of the writers wrote the, the, the best sort of introductory line for her more poo stories than A. Milne <laughs> that. <laughs> that is Emma true Emma Kennedy has they many are, poo stories they are incredible oh they're, they're worth repeating <laughs> yes I've heard the same one twice and it was brilliant both <laughs> tell times. me it again yeah so sometimes we have people on who aren't necessarily comedians but everybody's funny that's you know that's very key and obviously over your career you've been on various panel shows mm. But it's very unusual to have one that is some women and a man. Yeah. So has it felt different? It's um, not. No, like it should do, but it doesn't. And I and I like that about it. Mm, like I think yeah. listening to it, I don't think anybody will really notice any difference apart from they'll just hear lots of female voices, which is nice. Um, but I just thought this. There was definitely a gap in the market for a panel show that was mostly women. Uh, so we, a bunch of us sat around a room, some writers and uh, the radio producer that I've worked with for years, Leanne Coop, who's excellent. And we all sat around a table and sort of chucked ideas around and came up with this idea. And it's so great just to, you know, I keep creating these little work environments that are just full of women. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and it's just such a joy because a lot of my life I spend... You know, a lot of TV panel shows are, you know, quite uh, 
cock heavy, as I'd call them, yeah. as opposed to flap heavy, which is what I think this is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that helps with the applause. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, so much clapping. So we wanted to create a really heavily female panel show, and I don't think the audience really paid any attention to it the panelists certainly didn't I mean it's quite a joy to sit beside a woman and I was sitting beside like I had one on either side it's very odd I did once did the news quiz with Sarah Pascoe and she was across the way from me like across uh, the studio and we gave a little wave like oh hello <laughs> and I sat beside Sandy Toxfig once on a panel show I think it was the unbelievable truth and it was so exciting that we were both like quite giddy at the start of it it's so rare it's um, still really rare as well though it really is so we thought we'd just create something it's a way of sort of you know the show don't tell thing just proven just, just how awesome it. women are again yeah. again again <laughs> keep doing it again, loads. <laughs> <laughs> what else is coming up for you apart from elephant in the room i am doing some gigs at the montreal comedy festival in july which is such a lovely festival it's so great i got a gig with wonder sykes once there and wonder sykes is amazing that is amazing she's amazing so yeah, I'm going to go do a few gigs and then I'm going to have a little bit of time off because I've just obviously finished the UK tour in December and then I've done all of the European, Australian, New Zealand and Canadian dates and then the radio series. So time for a little breather, I think. And then we'll come back all guns blazing, I'm sure. Amazing. Thank you for coming and talking to us. It's been a real treat. Thanks for having us. Anytime. And just a reminder that Elephant in the Room starts on the 27th of June on BBC Radio 4 at 11pm. I'll be tuning in. Make sure you do too. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we award a controversial penalty against the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. So obviously it's all systems go in the Women's World Cup right now and what times we've had in the last 10 days. As I record this, it's 12 if you're listening on Wednesday or, you know, you do the maths if it's later than that. I can't help you. It's Monday night where I am, and as it stands, England, Italy, Germany, France, Netherlands, Canada, Sweden, USA, Japan, Spain, China and Norway have all booked places in the round of 16. And the fact that quite a lot of those teams have secured their places after just two matches sort of highlights to me the disparity between those countries with decent leagues and those without. I'd also say that some of those matches have been quite frustrating. There's been a lot of let's just sit tight and hope for a point, which is never that fun to watch. Plus, there have been some really heartbreaking matches. I'm making a heart sign at you, Nigeria, where decisions have been well Well, they're not questionable because they've been made with VAR, but they've seemed very harsh compared to what we might be used to seeing. I was a big fan of VAR initially. Gotta love a bit of Jeopardy, innit? And rules, you know, because, like I said before, they help control the fun. But then I saw a couple of games where I really didn't agree with what went down, and now I'm a bit pissed off with it all. And yes, I'm talking about France. And no, I don't think they're as good as everyone says they are. 22 shots, my friends. 22 to Nigeria's one. And they win by one goal from a penalty that would never have been given were it not for VAR. And they couldn't even get right until VAR gave them a reprieve that they would never have had without VAR. Anyway, fuck it. Whatever. I've just seen this match, so, you know, I'm still reeling. 
reeling. I'm not even going to start on the USA beating Thailand 13-0 and celebrating like, well, bellends really, if we're honest. That said, for anyone stupid, and there have been a lot of stupid people, who've tweeted about how the USA women's team don't deserve equal pay for beating a really shite team, let me give you a little schooling, because you've not done your research here. No, they don't. But they do deserve it for doing the same job as the men's team, but to a far higher standard, reprehensible celebrations or otherwise. England are through, Scotland are most likely going home, but we will find out tonight if you are listening on Wednesday. After England play Japan, probably their toughest opponent in that group, and Scotland face Argentina, probably their easiest. I am enjoying it though, despite sounding very much like I am moaning about it. I expect the round of 16 to be absolutely banging once some of the lesser quality teams have been weeded out. If you've got anything you want to say to me about the Women's World Cup or otherwise as long as it's not, you know, mean or rude, please do drop me a tweet. I am at InspiraGen. And now, for something completely different, here's a couple of minutes of me chatting to Olympic legend Catherine Granger back in May about what she's looking forward to seeing in women's sport this summer. I'm joined by the legendary Catherine Granger. Hello. Hello, lovely to be entitled that way. Thank you very much. I'm very excited. Uh, This is a bit of a fangirl moment for me. We are at the BBC's launch event for their Summer of Sport. I do have to mention hashtag change the game because that is what we are aiming to do. We've just seen some really lovely montages. Catherine, have you enjoyed it? What, What do you make of all this? Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been such an incredible night. And I think those evenings when they're, they're sort of launch events, you're never quite sure what's going to be launched and what it'll be and if it'll be a sort of just a list of what's coming or, and just a chance to meet people. But there's been most amazing presentations, most amazing people on stage talking about what's coming this summer. Really inspirational leaders both kind of who play sport and coach sport and also present about sport. And then they've got these incredible videos, like you said, which is a shame that we cannot do over a podcast, but just... You know, fast-paced, capturing the most iconic sportswoman, uh, you know, with amazing montage and music over the top or poetry over the top, and just that. It's really inspiring, saying, God, oh, this is... We've got, we've got a great place in women's sport, but it's about to get even better. So what are you looking forward to seeing this summer? Um, I think what's great is a lot of this... Um, the, the important thing with the BBC stuff is this is open to view for everyone. So, for example, they're showing football, Women's World Cup, that's in this summer... Um, all 52 matches that's never been done before that's going to be incredible and you've got amazing teams going to keep eating there I will be in person up in Liverpool for the Netball World Cup because I was at the Commonwealth Games and saw the England team beat Australia in their home ground there um, and I think there'll be an amazing amazing fortnight of competition up there they've got Women's Ashes coming up as well which is going to be incredible because again a nice grudge match between Australia and England there's just so many different events we've been talking about Wimbledon who's coming and, and the fact that that's going to be open to you know anyone could take that title and that gets and everyone watching and suddenly thinking they can win Wimbledon and their back gardens it's just every event there's just something that's going to really showcase fabulous athletes competing and I think the big message from here is it's not just this is you know time to put women's sport on tv this is it's on tv because it's fabulous sport and it happens to be women playing it and it's and it's such an exciting time to to showcase this level of competition next year we're going into the olympics again who should we be sort of starting to look out for on the growing scene do you know what <laughs> i'm deliberately not going to name many people right now because um this summer is also qualification for a lot of sports so so the rowing world championships this summer and it will qualify for the olympic games and the paralympic games as well and there's kind of until that moment is done you sort of feel you want to leave people to get their qualifying moment 
Um, and then at that point, you can start to turn their eyes to it. But it's quite a younger, newer team, and that's very exciting to look for Tokyo. We've heard a lot tonight about how the game is changing for female athletes and sport in general, and a lot of people sort of refer to this kind of tipping point that we're at. Do you think that this is a real moment of change? Yeah, I think I think being an Olympic sport, I feel really lucky because I think the Olympics and the Paralympics have, have almost had that amazing platform to show women's and men's sport equally. Not many people tune in to watch a men's race or a women's match. It's you watch the Olympic Games or the Paralympic Games. So, And I think what we're seeing now is across the professional sports as well, the real rise in interest, the rise in participation, the rise in you know, television broadcast of covering you know, women's cricket, women's football, women's rugby, women's golf, all the big things as well. So I think, I think we've had a tipping point to some extent, but I think it's about to tip a lot more, and that's great for all of us. Catherine, thanks so much. Pleasure. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did we watch this week? This week we watched 1984's 1984. Hey. <laughs> I've got to clarify that I actually didn't watch it for technical reasons. So instead, I just looked out of the window. Seemed about the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so based on the George Orwell novel of the same name, starring the big names John Hurt, Richard Burton, Richard Burton's last film. Actually, film is dedicated to him. I've got a John Hurt thought. Have you? So I started to watch it and then my computer said no. But John Hurt, was he born elderly? Yeah. <laughs> he just, he just, he's like, he's just born elderly. He's yeah. just got a really old, crumpled face. And he's only 18 in this film. He's not, no. he's not only 18. Well, that's what happens when a foot stamps on a human face forever. <laughs> well, it's going to be really difficult to talk about 1984 without talking about the book at the same time. And you've pissed on my usual first question, which is, so when are we? <laughs> well, do you know what? OK, so this is something I wanted to talk about. Who remembers actual 1984? I was one slash two, so no. I was seven, so bits. As I'd have been nine. And I can remember when it was coming up, especially because it's just before Christmas, and newspapers don't have anything to write about. There was this flood of features about, oh, 1984's coming, 1984's coming. And then this instant backlash of, oh, don't be ridiculous, like, it's not going to happen next year. But actually, 1984, genuinely, the most terrifying year of my life, apart from possibly, you know, maybe what's happening now. What, ha- what did what the do no- to you? No, no, I mean, as in, in the case of the news, 1984, we were right in the middle of Russia and America threatening to lob bombs at each other. We were right in the middle of the AIDS crisis. We were right in the middle of the miners' strike. We were right in the middle of the Troubles. Assassination attempt on Margaret Thatcher's life. Indira Gandhi, assassination attempt actually succeeded. Massive industrial meltdown, like biggest industrial disaster ever in Bhopal. It seemed terrifying. January 1984 seemed terrifying. And now we look back on it like glory days. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I just, I just think it's interesting that people will laugh and go, like, that's what 1984 was like. But let's not forget, the real 1984 was the shittiest year, I think, possibly on record. A lot of people died in a lot of really unpleasant ways in 1984. What about this 1984? The really interesting thing about this is people quite often look at 1984 
And they'll say things like, oh, my God, he was so prescient. And they treat him like he was Burke on the French Revolution. George Orwell managed to write down what was genuinely happening in Russia at the time, turn it into a novel and warn that that might come over here if we weren't too careful. Mm -hmm. So I think it's easy to forget that he wasn't making this stuff up particularly. He was looking at what was happening and making a warning about it. I think that's a really interesting point because having read the novel a couple of times at school, so I've not read it for a long old time, the cinematic version feels much more Soviet than when I was reading it, it felt to me. Yeah. So I think that that is really interesting. So obviously, I mean, there's not really much to say in the point of the plot because if you don't know the plot of 1984, you'll have stopped listening to this by now. But okay, obviously this film or this book inspired a number of things that exist in popular culture now. Room 101, Big Brother, arguably I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, to be honest. Cages with rats on and put on more people's faces. Thanks, George. Yeah. What's happened in this is there's been an atomic bomb. Several super states have formed and they are constantly battling each other. In Airstrip 1, which is what the United Kingdom or certainly England is now called, Winston Smith just plods on with his life and then starts to question the omnipresence of Big Brother and the surveillance state and where the world is going and is punished for it because that's what massive states do to people who question what's happening in them. Actually, I do have to say, one fact we do know in this is there's a razor shortage and we know that for two reasons. Number one, because everyone's always talking about the razor shortage and number two, because of the size of the bush. That we see in it. (laughs) Mm, Sexy. Is that a $2 prostitute? No, it's Julia. Oh, $2. Julia the spends... The lady who gets older, the closer you get. What, the two... Yeah. Also, yeah. Well, do you know what? The, my main takeaway from this is that she is played by the woman that played Edna Birch in Emmerdale for, like, a squillion years. Wow. She's dead now, sadly. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, she is. Mm. Anyway. So Julia in it is almost permanently naked. And I actually quite enjoy the fact, and I suppose it's because it was 1984 and we, everyone wasn't being told to pull all their body hair off but that actually it makes sense logically because there aren't any razors right and you think now there wouldn't be any razors but still julia would have a really trimmed bush Mm. in this she doesn't obviously i didn't get to see it did you get a close-up on her legs what were they like i mean i'm gonna guess that they were hairy she had armpit hair as well yeah awesome it's like the sex book i found in my mum's cupboard when i was little everyone was very hairy in that yeah 70s i mean there's a couple of things that of course would never happen most notably the attempt to eradicate the orgasm you know and push celibacy on people given that this weekend i have seen a number of people put out impassioned pleas for a man's right to have a wank in the toilet of the place he works i'm thinking they'd never be cheering on celibacy they really wouldn't it's interesting though because this isn't the first dystopia we've come across where sex is a is not a physical contact thing yeah. anymore. Obviously, the genius that is Demolition Man. Yeah. <laughs> we've all gone to headsets and virtual reality, but I guess that is almost one of the ways where we are there. I get what you're saying, but teenagers are having a lot less sex than we were told we were supposed to be having or were having. They are, and interestingly, there's like a department. In fact, Julia works in it. That's designed to just make porn to make the proles who are the vast majority of the population to make them just docile just to sit at home and wank to porn and they are trying to make like artificial insemination the way forward but it's for a different reason because in this the point is that they want you to love the state and you can't love the state if you love something else Mm -hmm. 
like your wife or your child or something. So it's like an individual almost comes out of a pod and doesn't exist except for within themselves rather than and within the state rather than within the family. George but, Clooney's Brave New World. Yeah. That is interesting though, isn't it? Because the reason why teenagers now aren't having sex is because they can't is because of the porn yeah. that they're seeing that is stopping them from being able to have like proper in inverted commas whatever however you want to put it relationships like sexual and romantic relationships with other people so it's kind of well also it's parallels also it's cyclical isn't it because of course teenagers now Mm. might not be having as much sex as teenagers did when we were younger but they're certainly having more sex than teenagers had in other periods in history yeah so i mean you could argue that that basically what happens is the sexual revolution things are just evening out a bit basically when when the pill was invented women were like yay fuck i can just fuck anyone i want and basically you could have just stopped with yay fuck yeah there you go (laughs) maybe it's just not a going backwards but an evening out if that makes sense. What Hannah's saying is we don't need to worry about the teenagers. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we do. Are um, we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? I mean, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because this is the sort of thing that gets you in trouble if you say it on Twitter, so i just say it now. It's the... <laughs> interesting logic. <laughs> I think we are there, but we're not there in the way that people necessarily think that we are there. Because I think the interesting thing about this is we tend to look at essentially what you would say, like a surveillance state, what this is, you know, it's very much something that people associate with the right wing. But the truth is, it's not. It's a parody of, of an extreme an extreme left mm-hmm. state. And let's go back to the circle when you've got, like, extreme left and extreme right, and then you end up the opposites are actually liberal and illiberal. And I think that you can see elements of this throughout the left wing and the right wing at the moment. Obviously, the idea of of doublethink, which we now call cognitive dissonance, is very much symptomatic of the left, I would say. Also, thought crime is very much symptomatic of the left at the moment, whereas fake news, rampant jingoism, that's the stuff that you see on the right. Oh, so we've got the best of both worlds. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's fun. Absolutely. That's fun, isn't it? Yay. Thanks, Orwell. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting as well is that you have Gregor Fisher, who is oh, so great Nesbitt. in this. So great in this. You have him... And basically Winston Smith together in a cell at one point, not for very long. And Gregor Fisher is absolutely enthused about the state. He's way on board, whereas Winston Smith is rebelling. And in the end, they both end up crushed because for that regime, you can never be enthusiastic enough. So I think, you know, the way we are with people at the moment, the way that... If somebody says something that like people disagree with, then that whole cancelled culture. Oh, yeah. And I think unless people are 100% in agreement with you all the time, people quite often are just discarded. And and that, again, very that I think it's very symptomatic of Twitter and that sort of social media culture. So I think, yes, we're there. We are there. The fact that you can't win unless you're 100% t- totally behind an idea people will forever doubt you so i think that exists and you know i mean those who do not understand history are condemned to repeat it has never been truer that's not winston churchill whoever one always says it is or many of the other people says it's george santayana he also said only the dead have seen the end of war which people perpetually say is aristotle and it's not um, I think his actual slogan should be, he who is not deemed to remember who said something will be misquoted forever in history. <laughs> but he was definitely right on that. 
Was there a Cassandra moment? I'm reluctant to say yes, actually, because like I say, I don't think he thought that's what he was writing. I don't think he was saying this is what could happen. I think he was saying this is what is happening and will happen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know if anybody else feels differently about it. No, I agree. That was great. You're going to increase your chocolate ration by 20%. Yay, chocolate ration. How many Arnie's? Well, as in, is it a um, is it a good film? Governor of California. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a good film. It's not it's not terribly gripping. <laughs> it's difficult because it's not. Jen's just slipped into a coma. It's not a particularly filmic book, and you end up having to focus on the huge chunk of like him getting broken. That takes up a huge percentage of the film, really, given that that's one of the most important things that happened in it. So it means it's light earlier on. So is it a good a good film? It's okay. Is it a good film as the book? Absolutely not, obviously, even though it's got John Hurt and Richard Burton. I'll tell you what, if I hadn't bought a really nice yoghurt from Marks and Spencers, it would have been a really fucking bleak Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) And what about, no, get us a chopper, Arnie? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose, yes, it is. Notwithstanding everything that I just said. But four. I think a four. Yeah, go on then, we'll say that. Thanks, mate. Let me let me join in on the scoring. <laughs> Crazy times. Utopia. So what, so are we, what are we watching next time? Please something fun. Please something fun. I thought we might watch Children of Men. It's not fun, but it is great. Local lad Clive Owen. Yeah. All right. All right. Deal. Let's not talk about how Clive Owen makes Hannah feel. Because no. we do know she's got a very easy gag reflex trigger. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, that's... No, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.